The company I have the pleasure of working for actually back in 2008 set out a plan saying we want to go from 85% fossil fuel energy generation to 85% renewable by 2040. That was perceived as being completely unrealistic and just daydreaming. That target was reached in 2019. That's Mads Nipper, CEO of Orsted. Today, we're going to talk about one of the great business transformation stories of our time. 13 years ago, this Danish energy producer, Orsted, was all about coal. Today, this firm is the world's leading producer of offshore wind power. How do they do it? And as companies around the world consider a net zero world, what can we learn from Orsted and companies like them? Welcome to The Bid where we break down what's happening in the markets and explore the forces changing investing. I'm your host, Mark Weedman, and I'm responsible at BlackRock for our international business and our firm strategy. On this mini-series, we're going to learn from the companies and business leaders at the forefront of this transition to net zero. There is exciting stuff happening out there. New and old companies are inventing the technologies and business models that are going to green our economy. This shift to a net zero world contemplates a massive transformation of our economy, of our businesses, of how people buy and sell and make and move things. How are we going to get there? How will we pay for it? And what are the roles of companies and finance in this transition? We met with 35 CEOs from around the world who are accelerating this transition, and we asked them, why are you doing this? How? And how are you going to make money while serving all of your stakeholders? We'll explore these questions in our mini-series, The Real Leaders of Net Zero. Joining me in our first episode is Mads Nipper of Orsted. What's Orsted? Well, the old name was Dong Energy. Yes, really, Dong. It's an abbreviation for Danish oil and natural gas. And Dong accounted for a third of Denmark's national carbon emissions. But in 2008, they decided to go green. Today, they're Orsted. They've reduced their carbon emissions by 86%, and they're on track to be the first major energy company in the world that's carbon neutral by 2025. Mads Nipper, welcome. Thank you very much, Mark. Mads, let's start with Orsted. Orsted went in about a decade, from being a coal burner to being an almost all renewables firm. Why? How? At the time, it was about having foresight as to, is our fundamental business model sustainable or not? And the then leadership said, you know what? Already then, sort of 13 years ago, it was very clear that it's not going to be fundamentally sustainable for the world to continue to burn fossil fuels. And then at the same time, I'll say that the fossil fuel business was not a fantastic business, which helped the decision. But fundamentally, it was about the clarity of whether our business model is future proof and is fundamentally sustainable or not. And the conclusion was it is not. And that gave sort of birth to the vision of turning it around. So no longer an 85 or 90 percent fossil fuels and a little bit renewable, but the other way around. And at the time, the vision was set out, we will make that transformation to 85% renewables by 2040, which seems completely unambitious today. But back then, 
it was actually looked at as being almost naively optimistic, which I think gives a lot of food for thought. How did the transformation actually happen? So the journey starts with basically a very carbon-intensive energy producer. How did the company actually make the transition both in exiting and entering? Well, at the time, it was possible to sell those assets at reasonably good prices. So the oil and gas assets, or by far the majority of them, were actually sold off. And at the same time, a specific plan to phase out coal and either close down or in some cases on the combined heat and power plants to replace that with sustainable and certified biomass, which is obviously a lot more sustainable than burning coal. And that transition plan was made from the beginning of saying we need to sell off the fossil fuels. We need to redeploy our capital from oil and gas into renewables. And at the time, we picked offshore wind as the major bet and at the same time made the transformation of our combined heat and power plants. So today, what's the energy mix at Orsted? Well, the energy mix is that by far the majority of what we do is offshore wind. We also have a sizable onshore wind business now. We acquired that back in 2018. We've scaled that quite aggressively. By far the majority of what we do is wind power. Then we are scaling up solar power quite aggressively as well. And then we have sustainable biomass as almost the remainder. We still burn some coal. And that is because we have not been able to reach agreement for our last combined heat and power plant, but that will decommission in 2023. And that means that by the time we will be carbon neutral in our generation, but we still have approximately 10% of our generation being from coal and gas, which we will face out. What happens when the wind stops blowing? So last summer, winds were low in the North Sea. It was a little cloudy. And electricity prices, there are other factors involved as well, but electricity prices in Northern Europe surged and it actually hurt your earnings. Are renewables unreliable? No, they are not unreliable. They certainly have a higher degree of intermittency than if you burn something. I will say that the key reason for the energy crunch that especially Europe has been facing has actually been shortage of gas and a really cold winter and then low rainfall, so hydropower was also hit quite a bit. So it was really not primarily the wind speeds, but that obviously contributed to it as well. But I think the solution to this is actually to have an intelligent energy mix, so offshore wind, onshore wind, solar, and in the future, also to have both more intelligent grids and storage solutions, which will remove any excuse for not scaling renewables to the fullest possible extent. There are solutions to ensure that the base load will be there. You used an important word that I think is natural to you, but perhaps maybe not to our listeners. What is intermittency? Intermittency is the variability in the power supply due to when the sun shines or whether the wind blows. And that obviously means that in order to have the necessary stability in your grid so that your lights won't flash or your electric trains won't stop moving, you need to have a certain what is called base load in your electricity grid. And today, that to a large extent comes from having, whether you are in a country that has nuclear power or burning, some kind of green molecule. And in our case in Denmark, I can say that that base load is provided primarily by Orsted, actually, but that is through certified biomass, which is something that's like using wood that are sort of the remains of making timber that would rot anyway, which means that it is also considered fully sustainable. For now, Something needs to be burned to have that base load. But in the future, 
with a much stronger mix between renewable technologies, but also storage solutions from things such as batteries or green hydrogen, that will mean that we actually can have a world that runs entirely in green energy. But it's not easy. But the solution is not to stay with fossil fuels. That is the only thing we have to avoid at any cost. Batteries or hydrogen? Talk about those technologies and what you imagine. We don't know, but what do you imagine will happen? I imagine that the short-term variability or intermittency in power will be bridged by batteries. Already today, there are perfectly good solutions to bridge six to nine hours, for example, at night if you have a solar farm. But when we are talking about longer-term storage, so say if you have prolonged periods of time where the wind doesn't blow and maybe there's too little sun, that is where we need to make green molecules. Obviously, long, long term, there could be really large scale batteries. But for now, the most likely solution is that fuels or hydrogen based things that we actually can burn is the best way to store power and therefore regenerate back into electricity. With today's technology, there's a little bit of energy loss in it, but it's doable and it is indeed scalable. So this decarbonization transformation that Orsted has led, that other companies are leading, is it about creating new businesses and new markets? Or is it really about reducing risk? It's about both, Mark, because I have no doubt that this market is going to be one that will grow tremendously. We need to decarbonize the grids as soon as we possibly can. And that means, for example, offshore wind, that will, without any doubt, grow to five to seven times the current size in in less than a decade. And I cannot imagine many markets that will grow more. At the same time, Green hydrogen is not only going to be used as a longer-term storage solution for power, but it is also something that already today there are industries that need something that burns. Just imagine sectors like steel that need really high temperatures. Imagine global shipping that needs fuels on the long-haul container ships. That is something that you can actually also make of renewable power. So I have absolutely zero doubt that the market for renewables and also for renewable fuels is going to grow tremendously, which is creating a new market and scaling a new market. But it's also really about reducing risk because there will be a time where it is not just wrong for environmental reasons, but also simply that customers won't accept your business if you are still based on fossil fuels and is a major emitter of greenhouse gases. You know, there's two forces coming together. One is the basic reinvention of effectively the supply function, the creation of electricity, of energy, and that technology transforming that. But the other part you just alluded to is that buyers are changing. And the buyers of the future will be much more sensitive to the carbon intensity of what they buy than today. And that's not just in energy. It's in everything, packaged goods, even agriculture. That's right. So this transformation sounds like it requires a lot of capital and a lot of investment. Is this just for big companies or can small companies play a role too? I think building large-scale renewable assets is primarily for big companies. But I think the decarbonization journey is for any company in any industry of any size. And it is doable because you can buy green power. You can have big investments into energy efficiency, which is another thing the world needs. You can electrify your processes. And you can also, I think another great example of creating a new market is mask our fellow Danish men in container shipping, because they burn today over 12 million tons of crude oil on their ships. And instead of saying, how can we limit the damage here? How can we mitigate the risk of this potentially being unacceptable or simply wrong to do? By saying, we want to be the first ones who actually offer 
green logistics. They are creating a new market that didn't exist tomorrow that could very likely attract a premium price because that's what some of the business-to-business customers would actually want to do. So I think any company can and should be decarbonizing their business. It is possible for everybody. For some, it is more difficult because they could be in a hard-to-abate sector. And it is probably primarily for the larger companies to play a major role in actually generating the renewable power that the world needs. Mads, let's turn to talk about how you lead through a transformation. This isn't, as we say here in New York, your first rodeo. You led marketing at Lego during the grand rebirth of the firm, and you spilled Lego all over my children's floors. Then you turned around the firm Grunfuss, a water technology player, and now you're CEO of Orsted. What have you learned about leading these transformations? What's the secret? There's probably not a silver bullet or one thing that will ensure a successful transformation. But I think a few components that I've learned that at least in my way helps me. And I'm sure there are other perspectives on that. But having foresight as to what is it that the market will look like and can look like? How can we as a company help shape that? And very importantly, how can we help shape that based on something we are already good at? So any transformation actually needs to be built on something that we are actually good at already. Surely we also need to learn things, but if we are good at only one thing and want to do something completely different, there's a high likelihood of actually not being successful. I call that a capability-based strategy. And then have the courage to do things wholehearted. Those are some of the components at work. And then at the same time, spicing it up with something where you can tell credibly You can tell both your employees, your customers, your stakeholders, this is something that actually matters to the world. Because my experience is when you can actually, with credibility, tell the people around you what you're doing is not just making money, it's something that will truly make a dent in the world. That brings an extra key out in everybody. Things that matter to the world. Purpose. What's the role of purpose in leading a company? Purpose is the North Star, Mark. It is what gets people out of bed every morning. It's what drives them to do the very best they can. It's what drives them to want to work for the company. It's what drives them to want to support colleagues because it's not just about their salaries, their careers, and the share price of their company. It's about something that everybody, whether you're a CEO or whether you work in the cantina of a company, it's what you want to tell your grandchildren or your children that you are part of doing. It's what should make you proud when you retire from your work. It's already really important for everybody, but it's only going to get more important because this is what people can, will, and should spend their professional lives on. When you talk to leaders of hydrocarbon-intensive companies, the big, for example, majors, what do you say to them, what would you say to them about making that shift, of becoming a company that's headed towards a net-zero future? It may sound like a paradox, Mark, because I'm actually encouraging them to be fierce competitors. Because I am saying the business that you have today is something that has to change. Most or all of them fundamentally know that. I would also advise them to say, do it wholehearted, but do it in a way that becomes sustainable. Because these companies, most of them actually have a healthy business today and in this year, is a proof that there's gigantic cash flows because of the energy prices that we've seen. So it's either very tempting to slow down because you're saying, wow, those cash flows are pretty attractive, 
or to say, I'll maybe stagger my transformation a little bit more because there's still a balance to be struck. My advice is don't hesitate. Come from a position of strength and accelerate, but do it in a sustainable way where the new business you're making is not only environmentally sustainable, but also financially sustainable. Because if you buy your way into this market and essentially creating non-value creating assets, it won't be scalable in the long term. Let's come back to the transition to a low carbon and ultimately net zero economy itself. For you, Mads, when you look at the world, what's your sense of the pace of change you expect across the broad economy in Europe and in the world? I have to say that things are going too slow now. But I look with optimism with what is happening now. I actually think that many companies especially are really picking up on the decarbonization journey. And I think the consumer demand will start to really gather momentum. The number of regulations we will see on markets, hopefully also seeing carbon pricing, carbon taxes going up. And all of this will mean that a carbon economy is bound to accelerate very fast, I think first in Europe, but it will come in most parts of the world quite soon. So I think for many, many years to come, we will still be in a situation where we'd want it to go even faster. But I believe that what we are seeing now on the corporate side and with an increasing momentum on the consumer side across all sectors, I will remain optimistic that the transformation we need to see of the economy would be faster than we think. We've been talking all this time, and we haven't mentioned the word government once. What role do you want to see government playing in accelerating this transition? What is the most important set of things that governments, U.S., European, others can do to accelerate the already commercially viable transition? They should start by setting very ambitious national determined contributions on the decarbonization. We came some way at the recent COP26 in Glasgow, but only some of the way. We also heard for the first time ever after a COP that we were looking at phasing down fossil fuels. I had hoped for that to be phasing out. That landed with a compromise I didn't particularly like, but at least it was mentioned. And then maybe most importantly is to follow that with policy action. Whether that is then in order to ensure that Land and seabeds is made available and consented for an accelerated rollout of renewable energy, whether it is pushing on carbon taxes or other green tax reforms that will incentivize the right corporate and consumer behavior, whether that is institutionalizing sort of support schemes for transforming, for example, into green hydrogen. Because today, green hydrogen is and will for a number of years be more expensive than gray hydrogen made out of fossil fuels. And that cost gap needs to be bridged, and that's a role that governments can play. Foresight about future industries and the role of government and companies working together. Talk a bit about where you see opportunities for the next set of businesses, the next set of industries that you'd expect to see European, the Danish, British, or the American governments or Chinese investing in. Where would you recommend? I would say even though it's not new, I would say please do everything humanly possible to scale renewable energy. Because whatever we need to do, whether it is new agriculture solutions, whether it is decarbonizing the heavy transport sectors, hard to abate sectors, or whether we are just decarbonizing the grid, everything has an accelerated amount of green power as a feedstock. That's the basis on which the green transformation rests. 
More than 70% of total global emissions are based on the production of and consumption of energy. So transforming the energy sector is vital. I think the most exciting new bit is actually green hydrogen and green fuels. Because this is a market that largely doesn't exist today. I mean, they are only relatively small-scale electrolyzers. But this is a market where I would say whether you are a European country, whether you are the U.S. government, this is a market that will become so big, it can become a truly global market. And if you build a world-class capability in that, and this is where also subsidizing that, pushing that industry moves ahead. But that train has not left the station yet. Even though my government might not like it, I actually would like global competition for that because we all need to push on that same agenda. That's a massive opportunity for something that could transform both the economy, but also the carbon emissions of any country or any part of the world. Mads, many of our listeners are investors. They may be institutional investors, they may be just individual investors. And the question is, how do you recommend looking at companies to judge their pace and seriousness, their wholeheartedness, the words you used, of decarbonization. And you've used the phrase science-based targets. That's right. What is that and why does it matter to an investor to look at? Science-based targets is the best shot at a joint objective nomenclature, whether you have a serious plan or not. And I know even that sounds complex, but science-based essentially means, do you have a plan for how to decarbonize your business that is in line with the science that lies behind the Paris Agreement or the Paris Accord. And that is not just saying, yes, I will decarbonize. It means there are certain very well-defined criteria what you need to live up to. One of the tangible ones is you can only do up to 5 to 10% of your total decarbonization through offsets. The rest has to be real reductions. You need to have real tangible plans that you can actually show what are you planning to do. At Austin, we were very, very happy and proud to be one of only seven companies in any sector around the world that recently got our 2040, so 10 years ahead of the world's deadline, but our 2040 net zero plan approved by the Science-Based Targets Initiative. And I can only encourage every business leader in the world, but also every investor in the world, to pay close attention to and support science-based targets, because this is the best way of not having greenwashing, but having substance in the decarbonization plans that we need. What's next for Orsted? For us, it is to stay a global leader, not just in terms of size, but in terms of capability and courage to make bold decisions in offshore. Offshore wind is the inner core of our business, and any business needs to know what is our inner core business. But there are new transformations ahead of us. And just to mention two potential ones, that is renewable hydrogen and green fuels. And it is also making more intelligent cross-technology solutions such as Energy 24-7. I'm convinced that the most visionary companies such as in sectors such as chemicals, technology, and so on, those who are not already on it, they will soon on to a journey where they will say, we actually do not want to buy green power. We actually want to be able to have solutions where we can document we only use green power. That will take innovativeness, mastering different technologies, and many other capabilities of companies like ours. So I would say Green fuels and energy 24-7 solutions could well be two of the dimensions that will be the next leg on our transformation, which already went from black to green, simplistically smoking. And our last question, what do you think is the single most important thing that needs to happen to get the world to net zero? Well, if I take the liberty, Mark, to say, if you look at the world overall, it is a combination of two things. It is the courage to show leadership. And I know it sounds like a cliche, 
But now is when leadership is more needed than ever before. If we only do what is popular, which unfortunately is a trend that at least parts of the world have seen in politics, if we only do what's popular, we won't show the necessary leadership. We should do what is right. And then the single most important thing that that leadership should lead to is an unheard of speed in transforming the world's energy system to renewable power. That's what we need. Mads Nipper, thank you for joining the bid. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mark. This information is for informational purposes only and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecasts made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. The information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. BlackRock does and may seek to do business with companies covered in this podcast. As a result, listeners should be aware that the firm may have a conflict of interest that could affect the objectivity of this podcast. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K. and non-European economic area, EEA, countries, this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N 2DL. Telephone plus 44020-7743-3000. Registered in England and Wales, number 02020394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. Please refer to the Financial Conduct Authority website for a list of authorized activities conducted by BlackRock. In the European Economic Area, EEA, this is issued by BlackRock Netherlands BV, is authorized and regulated by the Netherlands Authority for the Financial Markets. Registered Office, Amstelplein 1, 1096 HA, Amsterdam. Telephone, 020-549-5200. Telephone, 3120-549-5200. Trade register number 17068311. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. For investors in Switzerland, this is marketing material. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited. Company registration number 20001014 n This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited ABN 13006165975 AFSL 230523BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. Before making any investment decision, you should assess whether the material is appropriate for you and obtain financial advice tailored to you having regard to your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, and circumstances. 
In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice, nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund, nor shall any shares be offered or sold to anyone in any jurisdiction in which an offer, solicitation, purchase, or sale would be unlawful under the securities law of that jurisdiction. If any funds are mentioned or inferred to in this material, it is possible that some or all of the funds may not have been registered with the securities regulator of Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Mexico, Panama, Peru, Uruguay, or any other securities regulator in any Latin American country, and thus may not be publicly offered within any such country. The securities regulators of such countries have not confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the investment services guide available at www.blackrock.com forward slash MX. Copyright 2021, BlackRock Incorporated. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Incorporated. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.